0: Morning. It's great to be with you all. Um, it's been a while, a couple of years, I think, since I've been able to preach at Christ Community. Um, imagine there's a lot of new faces here. So um, if you don't know, I actually have been part of Christ Community Church, I think around 1987. First started going to Christ Community Church back in the old building, back when you could basically pick which row you wanted and almost have it to yourself, um, downtown Franklin. I don't know how, how, when you all started coming to Christ Community Church, but it's been a glorious thing to have seen all the work the Lord has done through this place. For eight years, I actually was on staff here as one of the pastors. Uh, so it's great to be able to, to come home, as it were, and be with you today. Um, about four years ago, I think it was, um, my wife and I went out from this place to be missionaries, home missionaries at Belmont University. And so I still work for the Presbyterian Church, not just Christ Community, but a number of the churches, all the churches really in Nashville, with a ministry called RUF. Up at Belmont University, and Christ Community is is still our largest supporting church as missionaries. So I'm grateful to you, and I want to be uh, able to express thanks for the way this church has supported and prayed for us, and continues to do that. So if you don't know who I am, um, I actually am connected to you in ways that you might not, you may not understand. So it's good to be here. Um, It's good to be in Nashville too. I love Nashville. Um, When I first moved to Nashville, it was to sort of make my way through the recording industry and the recording studios and, and whatnot. And um, eventually the Lord called me into pastoral ministry. I went off to seminary and then was called back to Nashville. Well, one of the great things about being in Nashville and being in the music industry for a few years is all of the people that you're able to meet. And often I found that I didn't understand the significance of who I was meeting, who I was working with, what I was doing at the time. I don't know, you know, maybe the benefit of having a few gray hairs allows you to sort of look back and see, wow, that was really cool. That was really cool. There were times I knew this is cool. I remember one time meeting Johnny Cash and uh, being in a little movie with Johnny Cash. That's a story for another day. But and even at that moment, I knew, hey, this is cool. This is special. <laughs> but there was, there was a, actually, a couple weeks ago, I went to, a, to see a couple movies at the National Film Festival. And uh, if you don't ever go to the National Film Festival, up at the Green Hills Theater. I encourage you to check it out and go next year. It's a wonderful thing that happens in Nashville that you may not know about. But one of the movies that I was able to see was a movie called The Wrecking Crew. And The Wrecking Crew is basically a group of guys, actually not all guys, um, there was one lady as well named Carol Kay. Uh, but this group of people basically made almost every important record uh, through the late 50s, 60s, and even through the 70s. Uh, this group of guys and Carol Kay on base played on records from You've Lost That Love and Feeling um, to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. They played the Pink Panther soundtrack. They played all the, sort of the soundtrack of the lives of so many people in this room, and yet hardly anybody knows who they were or who they are. And it was really wonderful not only to see this movie, this documentary about these, these people, but to have a few of these musicians who are very, very old now, but a few of them still around, still alive, attend this premiere that they had uh, a couple weeks ago, and to hear them talk a little bit about some of their experiences. And what really struck me, it was fascinating, is there are about five or six of these old guys up there, and somebody asked from the audience, you know, what was, what was your, your best session that you ever played on, or the best, the best song, the best track that you, that you remember? And a couple of the guys talked about it. About the third guy said, well, the best session, the best track, and he's, he was one of the guys who played piano on basically, you know, virtually all of these wonderful songs. But he said, you know, the, my favorite track of that whole era was a song I didn't play on. I said, it was fascinating. Here, the, you know, there's a whole movie celebrating this guy and his accomplishments on piano. He said, the best song ever that I, that I remember was played by a guy named Larry Nechtel. How many of y'all know Larry Nectal, anybody? Come on, surely at Christ Community, somebody. Moose knows who he is, but maybe he's in the back, so. Well, Larry Nectal, see, here's the interesting thing. I got to meet Larry Nectal one time, and you may be like, you know, big deal, but you know, what's funny, uh, I asked that question too, when I found out that we were gonna do a record with Larry Nectal, I said, who's Larry Nectal? And and the answer came back, and, and every time anybody's ever said, who's Larry Nectal, this is always the answer. Well, he played piano on Bridge Over Troubled Water, all right? <laughs> you don't know who he is, but he played piano on Bridge Over Troubled Water. And that's what, that's what this old guy said at the screening of the Wrecking Crew. Said that my, you know, to me, the best track that ever came out of this era was Larry Nectal's performance on Bridge Over Troubled Water. It's not something I played, even. And I thought, how remarkable that I actually got to meet Larry Nectal. I got to work on Larry Nectal's record. And and, and I thought about this as I was thinking about this vision in Revelation 21, and you say, well, what is the connection? Listen, (laughs) how does this connect? It does connect. It does connect. Because really one of the questions that we want to look at today is, is there any continuity, is there any connection between the best of this world, the best that's been produced, by human beings in this life. Is there any connection between that and what heaven will be? As I was driving down here this morning from Nashville, I was listening to Buddy Green's CD, Happy Man. Now, Surely you guys know who Buddy Green is, right? And I was listening to, I was listening to Sugarfoot Rag. And if boy, if you don't know that song, you really are missing something. And I thought, can there be any way that we can conceive of the new heavens and the new earth without being able to hear music like that? And yet, I think that for so many Christians, for so many believers, when they think about heaven, they think of it as a complete disconnect from this world. They think of God wiping away everything that has existed and starting fresh. And therefore, there becomes this guilt, this disconnect, and even uh, we begin to think of our enjoyment of things in this world, of the culture, the best that this world has produced. We begin to think of it somewhat as a guilty pleasure, as something that I guess we can enjoy now, but it won't have any connection or any continuity with what we'll enjoy in heaven. I would contend that this text challenges us to think very differently, not only about the new heavens and the new earth, but even about what matters now. So let's look at this passage, Revelation 21. It's actually not in the bulletin because I had so many other words I wanted to put in the bulletin. But I think there's Bibles. A lot of y'all have Bibles or Bibles, you know, under the pews. Um, And and I know because I've been picking up the bulletins the last few weeks every time I'm down here for Cub Scouts with my boy, that this passage, you've been in this passage for a while. So it's Revelation 21. We're going to read the first five verses, and I'm going to jump down to uh, verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. So follow with me. John writes this about the vision, about the things he saw. will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then if you would, jump down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor or their glory into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Pray with me briefly. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand this vision, Uh, not even to understand it fully, Lord, but to be captured by it, to to have our imaginations if you were baptized by it. Not only that our hopes would be set straight, but that our vision of the kind of work we're called to be about now would be transformed as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, whose kingdom is coming and will have no end. Amen. N.T. Wright, in a recent book, really a wonderful book called Surprised by Hope, says that the Christian idea of heaven and of what to come is really a surprising one. And, And he writes this, he says... In spite of the fact that among the early church and the New Testament, there is just an amazing uniformity in their idea of what is coming. In spite of that nearly absolutely unanimous vision of what is coming, the church today is really confused about what happens after we die. In spite of the fact that the New Testament really doesn't have much diversity at all. In fact, in spite of the fact that the early church is almost completely unified on this, and this is a remarkable thing because the people that made up the early church really came from very radically different ideas about heaven and about what was to come. The Jewish believers, as Jews, believed that there would be a bodily resurrection, but they believed that it would happen to everybody at the same time on the last day. And yet, what they come to believe is, no, now the resurrection has happened to one person. And that this, this final resurrection of all things, this bodily resurrection, has now been split in two. That's a really radical change. But what's fascinating is, the early church was also made up of people who had come from non-Jewish backgrounds. People who had been Greek or Romans and had very secular pagan ideas about heaven. And what they all believed was basically that, that, that what happened was eventually your body and soul were separated and would be separated forever. In other words, what they thought the final destiny of people would be was to be sort of set free from their body and to have their pure soul just sort of live forever. That's a very different idea from the Jewish idea. And yet, Whether you came from this idea of a physical resurrection that happened to everybody at once or an idea there'd be no resurrection at all, but you'd finally be released from your body and be this soul living on forever and ever and ever, wherever you came from, when you came to Christ and you embraced Christianity, everybody had the same view about where we were going in the early church. And yet if you look around today, if you survey people today, if you listen to the kind of things that people say at funerals today, you find that there really is no longer that kind that kind of unity about what is to come. I actually was privileged to do the funeral of my grandmother just a few weeks ago. And it was really interesting um, to take part or to be able to do this service and to have a pastor at a church she had attended for a while also be part of the service. And I'd already prepared what I was going to say and he got up first. I didn't know what he was going to say. And he basically said something to the, the to the effect of, you know, she can still hear us. She's kind of still with us really in spirit. And I was like, uh oh. Because, you know, at the visitation, this guy was introducing me to all his friends and all the people at his church as, you know, this guy who could be, a, you know, a wonderful pastor on their church, and wouldn't it be great if I came into No, he didn't know me at all. He just had heard stories about me from my grandmother. But let me tell you, after I stood up and had to say, listen, she's dead. She can't hear us. She's not here. Uh, it, <laughs> he was rather cool towards me after the, after the <laughs> funeral. But the fact is, see, what's really interesting is you don't get that kind of disagreement in the New Testament or among the early church. And so what happens is when you come to a passage like Revelation 21, you actually read it for what it says, it actually actually comes as quite a surprise. That's why N.T. Wright writes his book, "Surprise by Hope. The vision that we get here in Revelation 21, while it shouldn't be a surprise, is actually surprising in, in a number of ways. And that's what I want to talk about and dwell upon this morning. What's the first surprise about the picture we see here in Revelation 21? It's this. There is stuff in the heavenly city. There's stuff in it. It's not just a place where souls contemplate the divine forever and they, they just you know, sort of... just sort of lay there or just sort of dwell there in bodiless bliss. No, the kings of the earth, it says, bring their splendor or their glory or their riches into the city. They bring stuff into the city, good stuff, the richest productions of humanity from every culture into this city. Now, Revelation 21 gives you just just a a, a hint of this, a bare-bones sort of sketch of this. But I don't know if you know this or not. You probably do, since Scotty's been on this passage for a while, Scotty and Scott, that actually John, the vision that John sees here in Revelation 21 is actually the same vision that Isaiah was privileged to see and writes about in Isaiah chapter 60. This line about the kings of the earth bringing their splendor, their glory into the city, is the same picture that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 60, and if you read Isaiah 60, and I encourage you, maybe this afternoon that would be a great thing to do, there's actually a lot more detail about this image of the kings of the earth bringing their splendor into the city. Actually, a number of the nations and what they're going to bring is described. The ships of Tarshish are going to bring their gold and their silver, right? Different nations, so there's more detail, and so it's without a doubt that John is holding up a vision The kings are bringing stuff into the city, real stuff. In other words, there's stuff in the heavenly city, and there's work to do. Actually, um, I didn't hear about George until I got here this morning. And yet, as I I think about George Kennedy, I can't imagine George Kennedy enjoying anywhere for very long without something to do. (laughs) And, and I think about the two things I think about George. I think about sort of back in the old, the old days, you know, him coming around all the time, wanting to tinker on something, wanting to fix something around the building, right? And, and the great joy that that gave him. But I also think about seeing George and Joyce almost every time I've ever been to a concert at the Ryman Auditorium. And I think, what a, what a beautiful picture. And those of you who don't know, for years he's been an usher there. And I think, what a, what a picture, enjoying the richest musical performances, really, that that our culture has to offer, and at the same time, finding such great joy in doing stuff. And see, that's such a a, a foreshadowing of what the new heavens and the new earth will be. Uh, We don't have to imagine somebody like George or somebody like you just sort of, sort of just kind of laying there, uh, you know, embracing or just sort of standing in the presence of God forever, just, just sitting there. There's stuff in the new heavens of the new earth, and there's stuff to do. There's work to do. This shouldn't be surprising to us. It is surprising because we, we have this sort of really skewed idea of what heaven will be. We think of it as being sort of this bodily existence on a cloud somewhere. But when you see this picture in Revelation 21, you see a very different picture. And again, it shouldn't be surprising. If you actually have read the Bible, if we've read the Bible, been shaped by the story of the Bible, we see God created a physical world. And not just a raw creation, God created a garden, a cultivated place. And He invited His people to work in it and to bring to fruition all of the God-glorifying potential that He had built into it. God had called mankind, Adam and Eve, to work the garden and to take it to the ends of the earth, to spread the cultivation to the whole cosmos, right? This is what God created us to do. Now, of course, mankind rebelled against this vision and rejected the good work that God gave us to do. And so you find the Bible, the story of the Bible describing where we are now. All of creation, as we just read in Psalm 19, declares His glory, declares God's glory. And yet the fact is, after the fall, in our sin, we try to make the creation declare our glory. You see, if you want to think about culture, I think the best way to think of it is all culture is an attempt to sort of express a map of reality using the stuff that God has made. But you see, the stuff that God has made is all stamped with meaning. Everything that God has made is saying something. That's the point of Psalm 19, that the heavens and the earth declare His glory. They don't just sit there. That's actually a pretty active word that Psalm 19 uses. In other words, the creation is preaching to us. It's saying something. And the fact is, sometimes we agree with what it's saying, but sometimes we try to make it say something else. But the fact is, all things that human beings are about is interacting with the stuff that God has made. It's in dialogue with what God has said through His creation. Sometimes we amplify what He's saying. We say it uh, and we agree with Him. Sometimes We try to make it say something very different than what God wanted it to say. I referenced um, an article or a a person to look up if you want to explore this a little more. And I unfortunately said Scott Turnow. And it should be Ted Turnow. And if you want to explore this, I encourage you to go to ransomfellowship.org. Ransomfellowship.org. And just search on that last name, Turnow. And you'll find a wonderful article that he did uh, on... Thinking Theologically About Popular Culture. It's a fascinating article. But here's what I want you to see. Let me give you a couple examples of how we, we sort of think about culture or how this idea of culture um, is really helpful for us as Christians. The first is the idea of work. God created work for us to do. Men and women were created to work. And yet, work was created as a way for us to say... God receives all the glory and the praise. Work was a way to take the good, glorifying potential of the creation and bring it to fruition. Work was created as a way of saying, God is a good God, and His creation is a good creation. And let me help you see it. Let me help you explore it, right? But after the fall... Mankind tries to make work say something very different. Instead of of agreeing with God that work is a way of declaring His glory, we try to make work a way of saying that we matter. We we try to make work into a way of saying, I can take care of myself. We do. I I love uh, Bart Simpson's prayer. Um, There's... There's one of the episodes of The Simpsons where they're sitting down to eat, and Bart says, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Now that's, that's really revealing. That, that really is, is, a, is a wonderfully pithy way to express what so many of us actually believe about work. Work is the way we show God that we can take care of ourselves. That's not what God made it to say. And so there's always going to be this tension. I'll give you another example, sex. God created sex as a way of saying to another person, I belong to you. Tim Keller calls it covenant cement. And yet, don't we try in our culture and in our own lives to try try to make it say something very different all the time? It won't work, but but we try and do it all the time. We We say sex is a way for us to say, I can get all the enjoyment I need myself. Or sex is a way of saying um, you know, that I'm just sort of this mechanistic you know, creature, that sex is just a biological function, it's just natural, it has nothing to do with the divine, um, just like you know, Tim Keller puts it this way, that, you know, the way we think about food, when you get hungry, you eat, and when you get sexy, you sex. You know? No, many, many aspects of our culture try to say that, that sex is saying that, but it's not, okay? So culture is always saying something. And at times, every culture is hearing what God is saying, and yet at the same time, every culture and every cultural production is also trying to say something different. This is the world we live in. Uh, Now, so this is the the first aspect I want to point out. The surprising picture is that there's stuff, there's stuff, but it shouldn't be surprising because God created a world of stuff. God created Adam and Eve to create culture and to fill up. The world, as you were, as it were, with this culture. Richard Mao, in, in a book, um, all, all the Kings of the Earth, or you know, the Kings Come Marching In, I think it's called, um, says that basically what's fascinating is the picture of the heavenly city is the garden that's been filled with all this cultural stuff. That, 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 that there's this continuity between the garden and the, the city that's now been filled up. Um, what's the second aspect of this? Of this picture that's surprising well i think it's this that's the kings of all the earth that bring their stuff into this city so the first thing that's surprising is it's a very physical vision a very physical description this new heavens and the new earth this new city but the second aspect that's surprising is it's a multicultural vision now in some ways this isn't as surprising in our moment in history because the idea of appreciating all cultures is, is becoming more of a theme in our culture. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the church is still trying to get up to speed on this. Unfortunately, from my perspective, the culture seems to understand this better than the church. And to give expression to this better than the church in a lot of ways. But this is the picture that we have. This is the picture the church should have been proclaiming. The the way that Richard Mao puts it is this way. Diverse cultural riches will be brought into the heavenly city. That which has been parceled out among the various cultures of the world throughout human history is now collected for the glory of the Creator. Right? Now, it's important to understand that in the Bible culture, kings were more than just political rulers. Kings set the tone for the culture as well. And so when you see here a picture of the kings of the earth bringing their splendor, it's without a doubt a picture of cultural um, connection and different cultures coming together. Uh, In other words, Richard Mao puts it again this way, to assemble kings together was in an important sense to assemble their national cultures together. This is why Isaiah and John could link the entrance of the kings into the city with the gathering in of the wealth of the nations. The kings are the ones that express the culture. And so what you have here is is a vision of various cultures bringing the fruit and the the, the best of their culture into the heavenly city. Now, again, this should not be a surprising picture for Christians. This multicultural vision is not a left turn in the storyline of the Bible. God has been the God of the nations from the very beginning. He has. God has always cared about all the nations of the earth and has intended for the people of God to be a people of every race, tongue, and tribe from the beginning. This is why in Isaiah 49, it talks about the Messiah and says, it's too small a thing for my servant to merely come to be a light for for Israel. I will also make him a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. This is Isaiah. But, but you know, it, it, it goes all the way through the Bible. Now, what's, what's fascinating is God's people have sometimes really struggled to believe this, to believe that this is what God is about. Even though Israel was called to be a blessing to all the nations, they often resisted it and they never really got it. But that's what God intended from the beginning. God did not wake up one morning and decide, you know, I think it would be really great to include some other people beside the Jews. Maybe I'll send Jesus and I'll actually get him to to sort of talk to some other people instead of just the Jews. No, this has been God's intention from the beginning. This multicultural vision, this picture that we see in the heavenly city being a multiculturally gathering place has always been what God has been about And there are all kinds of places that anticipate this multicultural vision. A couple weeks ago, Greg Thompson came and spoke here about uh, worship. And I loved one of the things that he said was that, you know, what you see on the day of Pentecost is fascinating. You see God pouring out his spirit, but you do not see all of these people now speaking the same language. What you actually see is all these different people speaking their own language And yet everybody can understand it. So many of us seem to think, at least by the way we live our lives and practice, that there's one pure cultural expression of the gospel and eventually all the cultures of the earth will conform to that. But that's not what you see foreshadowed in Acts chapter 2. You see the various cultures sort of maintaining their cultural distinctiveness even as they come together in praise and glory and declaring the gospel. And you see that in Revelation as well. Multicultural vision, that's the vision for all eternity. In other words, there is no one pure cultural expression of the gospel. There never has been and there never will be. It takes a whole world of cultures to exhaust, if you will, or to explore all the God-glorifying potential that God has made. Listen, I... I I had a pastor one time tell me that he thought all we'll ever sing in heaven is Bach. I thought, wow, really? I said, why don't we just sing the best bar that Bach ever wrote over and over again? It's a ridiculous contention. And yet, as we think about what we enjoy, as we think about even the worship that we think is ideal, do we somehow communicate to the nations of the world that for you to really be pleasing to God You have to to get on board with this cultural expression. One of the great things about Christianity is is that the church has stood against that. In Acts 15, this question basically comes before the apostles. Do the Gentiles have to become Jewish to really be pleasing to God? And thank goodness they see that the Bible doesn't teach that, that God has not approved that line of thinking they say basically, no, you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. And when they make that declaration, it sets, it sort of opens the door for Christians to understand that every culture can be an incarnation and an expression of the goodness of God and the glory of the gospel, right? Marva Dawn, one of my favorite writers on worship, said, listen, if our churches, if this church reflected the kind of diversity, that the city will reflect one day then everybody should expect to come to church on Sunday morning and sing songs they don't like (laughs) because every one of us has certain cultural expressions that feel familiar the picture here is that we're going to enjoy just as God enjoys cultural expressions from all kinds of cultures now this is something that should shape us now We should be thinking about how can this shape us now? Again, it shouldn't be surprising, but it is. And so what you find is fascinating, Christianity is actually the most culturally flexible religion in the world. Do you realize this? This is not true of Hinduism. This is not true of Islam. You have to adopt certain cultures to be a faithful practitioner of those religions. Christianity is not that. The the center of Christianity in the early days was Israel. And then it expands to other places near there. But eventually it goes to Africa. And then it goes to Europe. And then eventually spreads to America. But now, really the center of Christianity is not here in the West anymore. It's somewhere else. And Christianity is the only religion that can do this. Because we don't believe that one cultural expression is the pure cultural expression that we all need to get to. That's a really important thing for us to understand. Right? Um, uh, there's other things I could say about this, but, but let me just say this. This, one of the, the things that's so important to see about this is that we can and should extol the goodness of creation and the good things about the products of human culture, even culture produced by people who don't worship Jesus. Now, I think this has radical implications, for instance, the way parents interact with their teenagers about the music they like. <laughs> there is something to command in everything, And yet there is nothing that is pure and without need of transformation. And that leads us to this next point. Okay, yeah, there's there's physical stuff in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, I get it. There's the kings of all the earth are bringing their stuff into the new heavens and the new earth. But how can that be? Because verse 27 says, no impure thing will be in the city. So what cultural stuff is impure or is pure. How can there be stuff from all cultures if no impure thing is in the city? And, and here's maybe the most surprising thing of all. The only explanation for this is the fact that God has not given up on his creation and had to settle for just pure human souls. God's redemptive and transforming work, listen, will not be limited and is not limited to saving human souls, but must extend even to the things human beings have made if this vision in Revelation 21 is to be a reality. And so what's surprising about this, I think for most of us, is we tend to think very truncated way about the work of Jesus. That's the real tragedy. It's one thing to to sort of think that the that the new heavens and the new earth won't be physical and won't be multicultural. But what's really tragic is when we think in a truncated way about the work of Jesus. But if if no impure thing will exist in the city, and the kings of all the earth will bring their glory into the city, the only way to explain that is if the work of Christ, the transforming work of God, extends beyond just human souls, but it extends to the stuff and the work that we do here and now. Now that is amazing. Because what it means is that our God is a God of dogged perseverance. What it means is even though human beings have sought to fill the creation with the idolatrous productions of their own culture, God is still going to take that stuff, cleanse it, transform it, and use it to fill up his city. Wow. Anthony Hokuma, the great... um, Professor of theology at Calvin Seminary said this the total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem this entire creation from the effects of sin. Right? Do you believe that? But take note God does not welcome everyone and everything just as they are into the city. In other words, the vision we have here is different than sort of the postmodern utopia where everything is welcomed because nothing can be judged. No, there's nothing impure here. Judgments are still made about culture. In other words, the Bible is not always just pro-culture. All cultures reflect God in some way, but all cultures must stand before God in judgment. And there actually is a hint of that in our text here. Richard Mao points out that if you go back and look at Isaiah 60, there's a little more detail here about this picture. And what you see is that the kings are led in procession. Into the city. And Isaiah 14, verse 2 says that God promises his people, listen, that they will, quote, take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppress them. So what Richard Mao says is this picture of the kings coming before the king, it's not just a picture of all the kings being converted that if you connect this to the theme Isaiah is developing, some of what this may mean is some of these kings are coming before God as being led as captors by those who they themselves had captured. In other words, this is not just a pretty picture. In other words, there may be a hint here of judgment. In other words, all the kings of the earth will have to stand before God one day. And if the Lamb... Has not stood in their place then standing before the ruler of all is not such a pretty sight see at the very least we have to see that these kings have been humbled because here's what's fascinating they don't bring their splendor into the city and use it as a bargaining chip to get a better seat at the table at the marriage banquet they actually bring their stuff and they they bring it into the city for the glory of God if you think about the way the kings use their culture in the ancient world and how the kings, the leaders, and the powerful and the rich use their culture here and now, it's not for the glory of God generally. It's generally as a way to keep their power, to proclaim their power, to proclaim what makes them better than other people. That's not the picture you see here. But there may be a picture that some of these people bring their culture willingly and some may be led in procession if the picture of Isaiah 60 is brought into this picture. So, a couple transformational kind of ideas. What you see here is a vision of both continuity with this world, but also transformation and cleansing. And and this is what's fascinating. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, points this out. And again, this should not be surprising to us, because in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, 1 Corinthians 15 is the passage in the Bible that is the longest description of the resurrection bodies that we will enjoy one day. And at the end of that section, what you might expect Paul to say is this, listen, don't waste your time working for justice and beauty and truth here in this world, because when Jesus comes back again, he's just going to scrap the whole thing anyway. Paul does not say that. In fact, after Paul describes the heavenly bodies, these glorified bodies that we'll have, what he actually says is this. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The work you do now in the Lord is not in vain. Somehow it'll carry over into the new heavens and the new earth. Just as there's continuity between your resurrection body and the body that you inhabit now, there's continuity between the work you do and the work that will be and the culture that will be into the new heavens and new earth. The kings of the earth do not create brand new culture when they walk into the city. They bring their glory, their culture into the city. Now, what this means is the work you do now matters. Not just as a testimony as a, as a way to sort of help people believe the gospel, but it matters because it's going to show up, the Bible says, in the new heavens of the new earth. Do you, do you know that? Do you believe that? Is that surprising to you? This is why, see, I can, I can say maybe we'll enjoy Larry Nectal's playing in the new heavens of the new earth. Maybe we'll enjoy Buddy Green's music. I sure hope so in the new heavens of the new earth. Now, what that means is it matters. The kind of work that matters to God is so much more than just saving souls. If this picture of where we're going drives us, it should drive what we do and what we're about now. The work of the Lord that's not in vain, if Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21 are any indication, involves a whole lot more than just saving souls. It involves the cultural creations of all the nations of the earth. It matters. Your work matters. It's fascinating. There's stuff and work to do in the new heavens and the new earth. A couple applications, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll I'll just say something quick about these, and I'm glad that I put a lot of notes in there. Uh, There really, when you think about culture, there really is no one-size-fits-all approach to culture. And um, there's a lot of, some of you may be more interested in exploring this than others, but I'll just give you the story. Uh, One time when I was in seminary, I actually went back to the school that I went to college, Berkeley College of Music, and I remember talking to this little fledgling group of Christians there um, about music and about why music mattered to God. And I remember this girl from Indonesia coming up to me and saying, well, she was really struggling, she was about to graduate, and she wondered whether or not she should go into Christian music. And I'd lived here in Nashville for a while. I'd been involved in the Christian music industry. And I thought I knew what she was talking about. And what she was struggling with was whether or not you had to do Jesus music to glorify God. And so I'm all like, oh, yeah, sure, I know the answer to this. I've interacted with people about this all the time. And as I began to sort of spout off my little answer, she went on and interrupted me before I could answer. I'm glad she did. Because she said, you know, because I'm from Indonesia. And in Indonesia, when I go back home, if somebody gets converted by a song that I sing, I can be put to death And I thought, oh, that's a little different, that's a little different context for how she thinks about whether she should do Christian music or not. What that means is every culture has to think about these questions, and every culture is going to have aspects of of which they will need to protest and commend culture. You can't just say, all culture is wonderful. That's not a uniform biblical principle. There are things to commend in every culture, but there are things that must be resisted and protested in every culture, too. And what that means is you actually have to use wisdom and care in how you think about culture. You can't just reject it all, you can't just accept it all. There's not an easy answer in how you think about this. Sorry. second application God has not given up on his good creation even though we try to use it to say something very different than what God intended it to say here's the good news brothers and sisters God gets the final word while we try to make the creation say something very different God gets the final word and this is good news for all of us God is going to restore his creation to its purpose of glorifying him forever see here's what's fascinating it's not just people who were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The whole creation was made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And here's what's fascinating. That functions for us not just as a command telling us what we're to be about, but it also functions as a promise. This picture functions, in a sense, as a command and a promise. If the the vision that we're given here is that all of creation and all of human creation will glorify God, then that means... That means we need to work to that end now, but even our faulty, half-hearted attempts to do that work, still God is going to bring that to be, bring that to pass. Fascinating. And finally, this last point, the Lamb and His glory are at the center of this vision. It should be that way now. See, there's all these different cultures that are members of the heavenly city. The Bible says that's actually true about us already And it is fascinating. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but maybe Scotty and Scott will pick up on this theme because I know it's one dear to their hearts. The gospel deconstructs everything that people use to try to define themselves. We try to define ourselves by what we do, by who our family is, by what our culture is, by our race, by our gender. All of those things matter. Christians are not... Gnostics who think that all of those things don't matter. All of those things are real. None of those things are ultimate. The Lamb and His glory is the light, it is the center of the vision here. And that's that's a beautiful thing, but it's also a challenging thing because we resist that. We want our family, our work, our gender, all these sorts of things we seek to use to define ourselves. None of them are ultimate. All of them matter, they're all real. But none of them are ultimate. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this vision. We are humbled by it, but we also are excited and thrilled by it. To think that you are about something so much bigger than what we're about and what we care about. That you care about all the nations of the world. That you care about their culture. That you will transform and bring into the heavenly city all of this stuff. What a glorious picture. But also what a challenge for us. We thank you even now as we celebrate this supper that, that we come now to a feast that is even now being shared by so many different people, so many different cultures throughout the ages, and it gives us just a foretaste of what we will feast on for all eternity. The fact that the marriage supper of the Lamb will involve people from every race, type, tongue, and nation, and that even now we can make a stand for that as we celebrate this supper. We thank you. We pray that it would encourage us and humble us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.